0: folks, grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus 32. We're going to be looking at the first six verses there together. As you are turning in your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and start uh, talking about some stuff. I'm going to start a little different today. I'm going to give you some statistics, some interesting statistics on people that have addictions who uh, experience a little bit of recovery and then relapse. They go back into doing whatever they were doing, and the statistics are oriented around how quickly people with certain addictions actually do relapse. Here's, uh, here's some examples. Cocaine addicts have a relapse rate of about 23% within the first two years. Ex- uh, eating disorders, people with uh, uh, disorders like anorexia nervosa and bulimia have a relapse rate of 40%. So in other words, 40 per- 40% of people who have that addiction go back into it at some, some, uh, some in some months ensuing after they have gotten clean. 60% of gamblers relapse within the first few months. 70% of those smoking marijuana will relapse within the first four months of abstinence. That's an interesting statistic, because I didn't even know you could get addicted to, to marijuana. And, and, and if you have the experience of, of that, don't, don't yell out and tell us otherwise. <laughs> But but here, I mean, from here, the statistics get a little shocking because the the rate of relapse increases. Um, 80% of methamphetamine users will relapse within the first three months. And of those, 90% of meth users relapse within the first four weeks of getting clean and uh, through a recovery program. And then lastly, 90% of binge drinkers go back to binge drinking within a year's Time span. Now, some of you are thinking, "Well, that's a morbid way to start a sermon," and it and it is. I mean, why why start with statistics like this? Uh, I think I, I'm starting this way on purpose. Obviously, I'm I'm leaning that way in my sermon today. But more than that, it's just so easy for us to hear statistics like that and just dismiss them as if they totally miss us, we have nothing to do with it, and I'm not like that, I that that we can somehow be inoculated to the addictions that the rest of the world sometimes are subject to, and of course, that's not the case. If you've been listening to us during this series, one of the things that we've said as we've traced Israel being set free from slavery is that their story is our story, and I think it's the same thing with these addictions. The Bible would tell us that we are all Addicts. That's a strong statement, isn't it? We're all addicts. We might not be addicted to cocaine or other drugs or alcohol and stuff like that, but we are all sin addicts. Sin has permeated all of our lives. And so, in a sense, this statistic of of addictions and recovery and relapse is our own. Like the Israelites, their story is is our story. And that's especially the case in the text that we're going to encounter today. So, here we are in the story of Israel and Exodus. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through a series uh, through the book of Exodus and we're looking at the theme of redemption. And today we come upon this, uh, well, really what's happened between last week and this week is uh, God gives Israel the 10 commandments and he instructs Moses to come back up to Mount Sinai a couple times in fact, uh, immediately after giving the Ten Commandments, Moses is allowed to bring the elders uh, of Israel up to the up to the Mount Sinai, and they experience the, I mean, just the Shekinah glory of God. They're in a manifest presence of God. And, and then Moses actually goes up again by himself, and as Moses is up on the mountain, God gives him more instructions of what the people of Israel are are to do, principally he gives them the law, not just the Ten Commandments, the, the, the moral law. He gives them the 600 plus commands that they're supposed to abide by, the vertical commands of loving God, and, but also the, the, the horizontal commands of how they get along with each other. He gives them their ceremonial law that tells them how to worship God, and also the judicial laws, the civil laws that are their national laws of how they are, the things they are to do and the things they are not supposed to do. God gives Moses the blueprints for a tent that would become the tabernacle for God's dwelling in the midst of Israel. He gives them instructions for the priests and their duties before God in the tabernacle. And then probably most symbolically, God actually gives Moses tablets with the words of the Ten Commandments that God writes with his own finger. And he gives it to Moses so that he would take those tablets and bring them back to the people. And so just as God finishes speaking with Moses, guess what these Israelites are up to? We see it in Exodus 32. Let's read together verses 1 through 6 out loud together. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and to himself. Up, make up gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church. Thank you for not just fall, but the coming winter and uh, this season that we pause to say thank you. Uh, we thank you for um, this opportunity for us to come to church. And this is always a, it's not a have to, it's a get to. We get to gather as you have commanded us to do as as your people. God, we get to sit under your word, not over your word. We get to listen and receive from what you would uh, command us to do. God, we get to glean uh, how you have uh, died through Jesus in our place for our sin and given us life, and so God, we pray that uh, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear all that You would have for us in this text about the golden calf. We pray that in Christ's name, and everyone said, "Amen, Amen." All right, let me give you some context into what we what we just read. Uh, it's only been a few months since Israel left Egypt, probably no more than two. Or three months. They're still fresh in this experience of not being slaves. God has delivered them, Moses has led them, and really in this moment, Israel has never had a day where they have not been really under Moses' instruction since they left Egypt. From, from the day they left Egypt, it's always been God telling Moses and Moses telling Israel, the very next thing that they're supposed to do. And so this idea of not being slaved and enslaved is very new for them. And as it happens with with us sometimes, you know, just life goes about and some things happen that are unexpected. One of the unexpected things is Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. Of course, Moses had gone to speak with God before, but in this case, he actually goes and doesn't come back, or at least for a little while. He puts Aaron in charge, uh, but there's no indicator whatsoever that Moses is going to be gone for a whole month. And in fact, he's gone for more than a month. He's He's gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's receiving instruction from God. And so Israel does what we oftentimes do. What's that? Well, they got impatient. They started to wonder not just about Moses. They started to have doubts about this God that Moses had introduced them to. And they wondered, I mean, if if Moses is gone, is is the God that we're supposed to be serving gone as well? And so their doubts turn into murmur, their murmur turns into complaints, and before you know it, they're demanding that Aaron, this guy that Moses put in charge, uh, they're demanding that he uh, build them a substitute God so they can worship it. And what I want to do is uh, look at the text from the perspective of the sins that are coming out from the act that they're doing. And... Uh, Three particular sins in this case, and the first is the sin of disobedience. So what's firstly going on here with the Israelites is that they've, uh, they've succumbed to false worship. And more than false worship, this is idolatry, which is in direct disobedience to the things that God has told Israel that they are to do and are not to do. Uh, Clearly, Israel has, has remembered God's commands back in Exodus 20. Exodus 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water underneath. That's the second commandment. And so, as Israel were, was uh, getting Aaron to build this golden calf, they're actually violating both of these commands. The first commandment was a prohibition against polytheism. Yahweh, the creator God, was Israel's God. And so when the Israelites go to Aaron and they say in verse 1, come make us gods, they're actually rejecting their belief that there's only one, there's one and only one God, and that God is Yahweh. Yahweh. And then the second command was a prohibition against making idols. But not just making idols, it was a prohibition against dreaming up, imagining, or coming up with any kind of image that represented God. And so you can see, they're kind of violating both of these at the same time. And so if we would go back to the Ten Commandments and think about the summary of them, what God is saying to Israel through those commands, it's simply this. God is saying, do what I say, obey me. And that, can't, that, that might sound kind of strong or, or even harsh to you, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're just trying to figure out, well, well who is God? And why should I even do what God says? And uh, I'm not going to take the time to actually um, validate the, the, the statement, obey God or else. It, it, obviously, if, if you believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and authority of Scripture, that command comes from what we know of Scripture. God says he wants us to obey him. And it goes back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God, uh, you know, actually the, the story of creation, God creates all that we know about the world. And on the sixth day, he creates Adam and Eve. And he, in Eden, tells them to do one thing, gives them a negative command. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest what? You die. And, of course, Adam and Eve do the very thing God says not to do and It happens. It leads to death. They die. They die spiritually first, and then they die physically. And because of that one act, all of us have that same experience. We die. And so idolatry wasn't just what God told the Israelites not to do. It was also what they told God that they would not do. Again, if you back up a couple of Chapters, Exodus 24, 3. This is after Moses had read the law to the people of Israel. And here's what they say to God after that. They say, Lord, everything that you've said, we're gonna do it. And so I mean they're just like raising their hands saying, Yep, we'll do it. We like this stuff. You've let us, I mean, you've saved us by your strong arm. We need somebody like you on our side. They were all in at that point. And then a couple verses down, they say it again: We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey out of verse 7. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for us to intend to do something God tells us to do and then not do it? Have you ever noticed how easy it is, even after you've sinned, to say to yourself, all right, Lord, so I I did it, and I am not going to do what I just did ever again? And then you step over one square. And you do it. Doesn't that happen to us? Well, am I speaking for myself? Right, right. I mean, it just happens to us. I think it's the reaction of the addict. We we relapse. If you're a glutton, what do you do? Sometimes you promise yourself, you promise others that you're you're gonna stop overeating, but then you go and you get, you go, you open the refrigerator and you get, I mean, another binge. If you're a sex or lust addict, you say you're never going to use pornography. You're never going to do the things that you do if that's your issue. And next thing you find out, you're opening your laptops or you're going somewhere to do the thing that you do. If you are drunk, you swear that, man, this is my last drink. Really, I'm not going to take another drink. But sadly, sometimes we do it again. We fall off the wagon again. And and in our pride, we want to, I mean, we see these things in other people, and we want to say, well, man, why in the world would they subject themselves to stuff like that? I don't they know this? It's killing you. Why would you even do that? But as soon as we get those words out of our mouths, hopefully, you you get a little bit of the reality of, of of humanity. In one way or another, we all do that. We all struggle to overcome patterns of habitual sin. Your sin might not be addictions of drugs or alcohol. Perhaps yours is just. Um, white lies, or envy, or coveting, we keep getting tempted to commit the same sin over and over again. And the reason why we struggle is it's not because the sin is in our laptop, or the sin is in the refrigerator, or the sin is in the magazine rack, and those things are tempting us. The reason why we struggle is because the sin is in our hearts. That's what the Bible would tell us. It's in our hearts. And so the golden calf story really helps us see this. Why did the Israelites worship a cow? I mean, that sounds stupid, doesn't it? Because they had never really entirely forsaken the gods of Egypt. See, the Israelites had promised to serve the Lord their God, but in their hearts they still cherished their old idolatries back in Egypt. Stephen the deacon will say in Acts chapter 7 as he's really tracing the history of redemption for the the, the the religious leaders that are coming against him, he says, um, in their hearts they had turned back to Egypt. One of the early church fathers wisely commented that the absence of Moses simply gave the Israelites the opportunity to worship openly what they had been worshiping in their hearts. This is what's going on. They didn't even need someone to tempt them with an idol. They simply produced one out of the wickedness of their hearts. And, and this really is the main application of our text. And so, if you hear nothing else that Jeff is saying this morning, I mean, get these next few, few things that I'll say because this is what's happening not only with the golden calf, this is what's happening in all of our hearts. It's an issue of idolatry. Here's what the, this text is telling us this is the application of it. Idolatry flows from our hearts. It's, it's not just the Israelites. It's not just addicts. Both you and I, all of us in here, we act out of our hearts. We live and act out of the things that are in our hearts. And really, one of the ways that we can come to understand the things that are in our hearts is, is that we got we to gotta pause, and we got to ask ourselves a simple question. Here's the question. What are your deepest desires? I mean, if I could take, like, 10 minutes and just, like, have you take out a piece of paper and write that, I mean, it would probably be telling for all of us. What are the the deepest desires of our heart? What is that for you? Do you want to be in charge? Do you just want to be the boss at work because you don't like the boss that you have or because you think you could do it better? If I could just get my spouse to truly see me and love me or respect me for who I am, if I could just make a little bit more money than I'm making, if I just had three months of savings in the bank, if I could just get my kids to obey me, right? Right? What is that for you, the deepest desires of your heart? And I don't know if you noticed the list that I just carved out for us. None of that stuff is bad stuff, is it? Did you notice I didn't say anything that would be wrong to, to have that as a deep desire? I mean, you really want this to happen? That's the way an idol works. Sometimes they are good things. They end up being the worst thing for us. An idol is oftentimes good things that we turn into God things. In other words, we elevate them above the the level of the the worship that we would offer God, and we start worshiping that thing. I got to have it. And here's the thing that we do when we have deep desires. We say to ourselves, you know what, this is what I want, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. It's like the salesman that sets a goal and then comes up with a strategy to reach his goal, and then he's going to apply a little discipline to his life And then work until that goal is achieved. And guess what? That salesman salesman is going to get what his goal is if he does all those things. Am I right, Joseph Workman? (laughs) Absolutely. It, It works like that. And sometimes us and our desires work in that same way. And so as we think about idols, you know, a lot of times we go immediately to this idea of golden calves, like as if we all have Buddha statues in, in our houses. I mean, we don't have that. St- Most of us don't have that stuff in our houses. And yet we would, we would take this and, and say that, well, I mean, that's what an idol is, right? It's something that I sculpt or design or it's a statue. And, you know, whether whether I realize it or not, I'm just going to bow down to it. That's, an, that's a distortion of what an idol actually is. Tim Keller actually gives us some ideas of what current day idols are in our lives. And here's here's his list. He says an idol is anything more important to you than God. Think about how many times in a given day or a given week that you got some stuff going on that's like more important than God. Coming home from a, a, a hard day of work, I mean, isn't it easy to say, well, I mean, you know what? A glass of bourbon and a cigar might be what I need right now and you might start worshiping that moment for your life. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. If you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, sometimes that that the hours that my preschooler is going to go to preschool and I'm going to be at home or get my shopping done, I just go sit in a bathtub and get like some some hot sudsy water. That could be a moment that becomes a worshipful moment for you that you look to look forward to. More than God Himself. Anything that you seek to give you, what only God can give you. Sometimes we do that with relationships. We look for in a relationship to give us what only God can give us. And that person that, that you love, genuinely love, becomes an idol for you. Whatever you look at and say in your heart, if I have that, then my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll know I have significance. And then I'll feel secure. And then Tim Keller lastly says, anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity. I mean, this is a helpful list. And if you would just like take some time on this list and just answer it honestly for your own life, I'm sure you might come up with a few things that you are currently idolizing. Tim Keller goes on to say, there really are three absolutes of an idol. The first is, idols make promises, but they never deliver. And so we ask this question, why would the Israelites create a golden calf and start worshiping it? And here's the answer. They thought it would bring them divine guidance and bring them peace because that's what the idols supposedly did back in, in Egypt. Secondly, idols demand to be served. We'll look at verse 5 in a couple seconds. But, of, I mean, the thing is, they built this calf and they were willing to, I mean, just worship this, this metal god. And I think that's what addicts do. The object of our addiction demands that we serve it. There's a story of a, a guy who got clean from a cocaine addiction. He goes to AA, he makes a covenant that he wouldn't use uh, drugs anymore. And as soon as the, the covenant of, of, of abstaining comes out of his mouth, he leaves that meeting, gets on the phone, calls his supplier, and he, he heads straight to get his next pickup. And that's what an addiction does. It demands to be served. They rule over us. Thirdly, idols destroy our lives. And again, that sounds kind of harsh, but it's true. An idol will rob you of the very things that you're trying to uh, get from them. And so, what's the solution to our idolatry? I'm going to get more to of this at the end, but but here it is. And this sounds simplistic, but it's true. It's reordering your worship because when you're when you're bowing down to our current day idols, wherever they may be, what you're doing is you're actually worshiping something that, that wasn't meant to be worshiped. And the solution is, is being aware of that and then turning. The, the Bible uses the word repent. All right, so we looked at the, the sin of um, of disobedience. Here's the, here's the next sin that we see in our text, the sin of distrust. Look at verse one and two again. So here's what's going on behind the the scene of this text. You got Moses up on the mountain. He's meeting with God. God is giving him the law. But really, what's also happening is God is actually talking to Moses and, and giving him instructions to prepare the people's hearts to go into the promised land. Do you realize that Israel wasn't supposed to stay in the wilderness but only a few days? So God was he brought them out of Egypt he was gathering them into a nation and really their trip from where they were into the promised land into Canaan would have been a very short trip God was purposely giving them a little bit of time so they would get to know him he would establish a relationship He was going to slowly transform them into an army and he was going to take them along a path for which God leading them would destroy all the the, the current nations occupying that land. And then Israel was going to be in in a land that God had meant for them. And so this idea of the promised land, this, this beautiful land, literally flowing with milk and honey, is what God intended for them to have. This, this land promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Israel was meant to live there and thrive there, dwelling in the midst of God. And they were supposed to be a light to all the nations. That was God's, God's intent for them as Moses is up on the mountain. But what happens? What what gets in the way of them uh, fulfilling that, that thing that God wanted to do with them, I mean, it was their impatience. Not only their impatience, it was their distrust. Scholars say this is an interesting conversation going on between the, the Israelites. We don't know exactly what sect of the Israelites are here, but the whoever they were and, and Aaron. Scholars say this was a mob waiting to happen. They actually come to Aaron, and they're actually threatening him. They're demanding some things. It's like my favorite musical, West Side Story. In West Side Story, obviously you have... Um, you have two gangs from different sides of town, and uh, whenever they come together, there's like an antagonistic relationship, and you know there's a fight waiting to happen, and as soon as they come, it's just like it's, something bad is going to happen. And that really is the scene that the text is setting for us as these leaders are coming to Aaron, and commentators will also tell us, it's, here's the conversation, it's, it's not... Well, Aaron, um, Moses is gone, and we don't know about God either. We, what do you think about making us a golden calf so we can worship it? That wasn't the conversation they had. More, uh, more likely, it was like this. Aaron, go make us a cow. Do it right now. And so, th- I mean, the, the rest of this stuff just goes downhill very quickly. Let me, let me give you an aside. Let me ask you this. If you could look back in your life right now and reflect on all the good advice that you've ever received and then bring that good advice into the current day, I mean, how, what would you do with it? How would you receive it? Would you, you, know, would you try to make right the wrongs that you may have overlooked um, before? Butch and I were talking before service, and we were talking about how um, wisdom comes with age. Like, so Butch made this, he, he actually said these words. He says, uh, you know, if I had if I'd only done what my father said. So think about things that your grandparents, your <laughs> parents, your mentors in your life ha- may have said to you. Stuff like, well, uh, save your money up, and when you're paying your bills, pay yourself also so that you're always got this, 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 this rhythm of saving money. Or if you're going to invest, find some investment that compounds your interest. And all you got to do is put a little bit in every month, put a little bit in. And at the, the end of several years, if you don't like suck it out, you're going to have a lot of money. I mean, what, isn't that great advice that you need when you're young so that when you get old, you got all this stuff there and you've done really nothing to amass massive amount of money? How about this? Save up big items if you that you want to get in life, so that you don't have to uh, submit yourself to to loans for cars and for furniture. Isn't that a good isn't that good advice that you need when you're young, so that you won't fall prey to it when when life gets tough and you find yourself in a bind, you have all those loans to pay off. Uh, and this is a good one as well. Never go to bed with an argument unresolved. How about that one? Why do I mean why why do we get um, good advice like that from, from our parents? Is it, is it because they want to um, stifle us or just trying to tell us what to do? Mostly it's because they love us, right? They want us to be happy. They, they want us to not make the mistakes that they have made. But more than that, they're just trying to help us experience joy without the encumbrances that we sometimes subject ourselves to when we choose to do things our way. And that's what God is doing here. The joy that God was preparing for Israel on the mountain was a, a million times over what they could have imagined that he wanted for them. They had no idea what the promised land was going to be like, but it, was, it would have been beyond their imagination. He was giving Moses specific instructions on the things that would bring them life, abundant life, with God's presence in the midst of them, far away from death. And I think oftentimes we act on our impulses because there's something in our hearts that doesn't allow us to trust God in the moment. And that's what Israel did. Does he really have my best interest in mind? Does he really care about me and my situation? Does he really plan to help me? Can God really even give me life? And if we, we might not articulate those words out of our mouths, but sometimes that's what we're thinking in the background. We distrust God, and this is where the psalmists are helpful uh, the song was to give us ideas of how to ingest the good advice of Scripture. I like Psalm one nineteen. This so, this Psalm is one of the longest. It's right there in the smack dab in your in your Bible, and it talks to us about the Word of God. Look at look at, look at what it says. Oh how I love your law! It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever before me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Any of y'all like honey? All right. I, I don't eat a lot of honey, but, but here's the thing with honey especially like tea and just adding it, using it as a, uh, as a sugar, without the sugar, because it's natural. It's, it's good to the taste, but it's also good for you. And here's what God is saying. He's saying, my word is better. Better than whatever you think honey is. Like, there's a few of you that don't like honey. All right, I, I'm not talking to you. The rest of us, God's word is better and that's what needs to be entrenched in our hearts. In other words, God's word is not a dread; it's it's a joy, and the metaphor extends to this: everything God is preparing for you, everything that He has set for us in worshiping Him alone instead of worshiping our idols, it's better than anything you could ever imagine in the here and now. And so, here's, God, here's God's heart for us. Firstly, it's be obedient. It's that we would joyfully obey him. Why? Well, because the word says so. But th- there's, there's, there's goodness in that for us. His words and commands are good. They're like honey. Here's a second thing, that we would wait on the Lord because he's delivered you from sin and bondage, just like he delivered Israel, and we can trust him to continue to care for us because he really does have our best interest at heart. Here's the third thing that we see from our text, and it also involves the sin going on here. It's the sin of distortion. And what I mean by distortion is the distortion of proper worship. Look at verse four. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. A few details might be helpful here uh, to to understand what's going on at the end of our text. Um, Israel has their own ideas about what worship should be like. And the gods they wanted to serve, Um, they they aren't guessing here. They had an idea already in their minds. And of course, this comes from the life that they lived in Egypt. They had worshipped the same pagan gods that that the Egyptians had worshipped. And so this was in them. They didn't have to conjure this stuff up. It was already there. They had, I mean, they're only removed three months from, from Egypt. And so they were copying the styles of worship that they had experienced for 430 years uh, of the syncretism and the polytheism of Egypt, and that leads us to believe that they were premeditated in how they built this calf. One Egyptian scholar explains what it would have taken to build, um, you know, this this golden calf. First, they would have had to have made a, a wooden model and made it kind of, you know, just like how an, how an artist makes any kind of sculpture. He has some kind of uh, framework underneath it. Then they would have taken. Uh, the precious metal and overlaid it, melting it down, pouring it over that. And then there would have been just a lot of fine detail work to make the eyes and uh, to to give the texture to the the coating of the fur. And I mean, all the things that you see that make an animal look like an animal that's actually a statue. And then on top of that, they would have had to use some really delicate engraving tools to be able to do that. And scholars say, even with the best artists and artisans, it would have taken at least 24 hours to come up with something like that. And so, I mean, that's a lot of work to get this colon calf, right? And so it it is kind of crazy and bizarre when Aaron, a a few verses down, we're not gonna read this, but in verse 21, uh, we see Moses and Joshua are coming down from the mountain, and the text says that Moses, as he encounters Aaron, is hot with anger. And he says to Aaron, what in the world has happened? I mean, what is going on here? And Aaron kind of hilariously uh, hilariously responds, well, I don't know Moses. I mean, they just threw their earrings at me, and we put it in the fire, and out comes this cow. (laughs) I mean, isn't that just ridiculous? Um, R.C. Sproul tells us the truth about what's going on. He says, the worship of this golden calf was idolatrous, immoral, and insulting to God. The cow gave no law demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun or call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. And that's a sad commentary, right? I mean, it's true. But it's really sad. They made something with their own hands, and they worshiped it, even though it was impotent to solve any of their real life problems. And so let's make this personal as I begin to close. Here's what's going on with Israel. They had taken hold of what worked for them. They had left Egypt but Egypt had not left them. So the thing for them that worked in Egypt, when life got tough, when they were just trying to make it, I just need to get through this day, were the same polytheistic, syncretistic worship that they had experienced along with the Egyptians in Egypt. And they were holding on to that. And and here's the really sad part about this. It didn't matter if what they had experienced in Egypt was, was slavery. For them, it was all they knew. They did not know anything better, and so it was easier for them to go back to that than to, than to believe that this God who had brought them out had good intentions for them because they didn't see it right in front of their faces. And of course, the misnomer uh, of idolatry is that it could, get, it could give the fruit of promise. They went right back to what they had known And that's what an idol does. We go back to it, and and in our minds, it has the promise of bearing fruit, and yet it never does that. So Israel thought in their minds that having a God in the shape of a calf would help them in that moment where Moses was gone, and the God that they had been introduced to was missing as well. And so again, let's make this personal. What are you fashioning into your God in the moments where life presses you? Let me say that again. What are you fashioning into your gods in the moments when life is is pressing you? What are the good things that have become God things that you just have to have for life to be right and for you to be satisfied? What are you making of your own imagination about God and his love and his character? How are you worshiping or perhaps not worshiping the God of the Bible? And then again, lastly, what will you do with the things he's commanded you to do? One of the things we see uh, and, and notice in the text is that Israel digresses in their idol worship. It's, it's kind of a slippery slope. Look at verse 6 one last time. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. Burnt offerings, that's, a, that's an offering that you would give to God to... Um, as an atonement for him to forgive you of in, your iniquity. And of course, a peace offering is a fellowship offering that they gave to God on a daily basis that they would just be in regular fellowship with the Lord. And instead of offering these to, to the creator God, they were Aaron had built an altar, and he was laying this down for this idol that he had just built with his own hands, made of stuff that comes from the earth. But here's the main point of, of, of verse 6. Commentators are split on how to interpret this, but I kind of take the side of, I mean, this this really became a, a party that got out of control. So again, Moses and Aaron are coming down from the mountain. They hear this loud noise, and they're wondering what it is. They think actually that the, the Israelites are being attacked or that somehow some kind of war-like thing is going on. But then as they get down and see what it is, uh, they realized, oh my God, this is just a party that had gone out of control and Isra- the Israelites are disobeying the Lord. And so false worship and idolatry will always digress every time. And here's what false worship says. It says, how can I find or make a God that fits me? Y'all know there is no such thing as a God that fits you. If, if you have a God that, that, that fits you, that answers your beckoning call and that does everything that you say that you wanted to do, that's not any God that's worth serving. That's just an idol that's on your shoulder that you're whispering to, trying to, trying to control. That's what false worship says. It's the sin, of, the sin of distortion. True worship says, how can I be conformed into the person that God desires me to be? And so let's let's wrap this up. What's the solution to our idolatry? And I already gave it away. And and, and in fact, it's kind of simplistic. And and it's the R word, it's repentance. It's repentance. That's what the Bible commends to us when we have a problem of idolatry in our hearts. And sometimes we get repentance wrong. (laughs) Repentance is more than saying you're sorry. Repentance is more than apologizing. Repentance is this idea of, of being convicted by the Holy Spirit that you actually need to confess something in regards to a sin that you're committing, that you need to ask the, the Holy Spirit of God to forgive you of your sins, that you need to perhaps even make restitution, make right for the things that you have done. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, godly sorrow brings us to repentance. So godly sorrow is not just I feel guilty because I did something. It's not I got caught and I feel really bad about it. Godly sorrow is really a work of the Holy Spirit in you that makes you realize, man, not only have I done something wrong but I've offended another person and I've offended God himself and I'm compelled to get it right. And so I mean if, if we need Godly sorrow to actually bring repentance to ourselves, which means we need God's help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately repentance needs, repentance means to turn. <laughs> It means to turn from um, the idols that you are serving and submitting yourselves to, and then uh, with God's help, you turn towards God. That you turn away from the things that you uh, are worshiping, and you turn to a right relationship with God. And so here's my encouragement for us uh, this week, particularly, as, as we wrestle with this text Let's spend some time asking God to reveal the idols of our heart. I mean, and this is especially so during the you know, the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I mean, this can be just a an, an overly covetous and because it's covetous, idolatrous time. We just want what other people have. We want more than we need, and it just lends to this this kind of thing and this holiday holiday culture that we have. And perhaps this is the prayer that we need to pray. Lord, show me my blind spots that cause me to worship other things more than I worship God. And so, so here, here's where we are with this text. Obviously, I began with worship, I'm ending with worship, and there's idolatry in between, and, and, and that's right, isn't it? Because when we are idolizing something, really we're, we're worshiping it. And the reason that we should entertain a right worship of God is, is because of nothing more than this. It's because of what God has done for us. And of course, that points forward to Jesus, because God, through Jesus, has died in our place for our sin. He's He's actually submitted Himself for the idolatries that all of us have committed and that we still commit. I'm reminded of Jesus in John four. He comes to uh, uh, He's in Samaria. He comes up to a Samaritan woman, and they get into a conversation about worship, and. Uh, and, and the conversation sort of ends on this, that true worship is worship that's done in spirit and in truth. And what Jesus is trying to convey to this woman is that at some point, the way that we worship, our passion for worship and the, the form of that worship are going to meld. And there won't be this, this, uh, this idolatrous worship of, of things that, don't, that should not be worshiped in our world. But I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this. The very reason we worship God is, is because he's, he's delivered us. That's, what, that's the case with Israel, right? When we think about God telling Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, what was the reason why they were supposed to go? So they would go out into the wilderness and worship him. God has created us for worship. Worship of not our idols, but worship of him. He brought the Israelites out of slavery that they might be able to worship him freely. And in a sense, he tells us to do the same thing as well. So the emotive passion comes when we understand what God has done for us while we're still sinners. And that's what this last verse is is telling us so, so profoundly. At the moment where Israel was partying the hardest I mean, they were were having, I mean, it it was a sexual party. You get that by the the word study on the word play. They had turned uh, this worship event into really a sexual event. And so at the moment that Israel was worshiping something foreign the most, that's the point where Jesus himself was dying for them. He died for them when they were in their worst the worst um, description we could give of sin, and that's the same thing that he does for us. Jesus dies, he lives, he dies in our place for our sin. He defeats death forever, and he, as the Bible conveys to us, is better than any deaf, dumb idol that we could we could subject ourselves to and worship. And so here's, here's what the text is encouraging us to do. Is trust in Jesus, not our idols, because Jesus is stronger, he's bigger, he's better. We sang that song today, didn't we? And he's worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the, this picture that you give us of, of what false worship looks like. And then we thank you for the admonition that we're not supposed to do that. Uh, Lord, re- remind us. Uh, ever so gently that your, your commands are good commands. Lord, you don't tell us to do things that are, um, are burdensome. But Lord, when you command us, you're doing it for, for our good and for your glory. God, help us to search our hearts this week, in the coming weeks, to search our hearts for things that, for, for even good things, that we've made God things, and that we are worshiping things perhaps that, don't even, that shouldn't even be worshiped, and Lord, bring us to a place of repentance. God, give us godly sorrow, and then turn our repentance into joy, the joy in serving and worshiping you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen, and amen.